0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Real Talk, a movie podcast. We are your go-to source for ratings and recommendations of past and present films. I am your host, Wes Jones, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky. Hey, this is
1: Tommy, podcasting straight from Nashville, Tennessee.
2: The Movie Buddy Conway, podcasting from Bowling Green, Kentucky.
0: Hello, Real Talk community. Thank you for downloading this very special interview series episode of the show. We have a real treat for you tonight. As tonight's guest is a very well-respected Hollywood producer, artist, writer, and president of Storm King Productions. Some of her personal credits include right out of college, she worked on an Academy Award-winning animated film called Antimatter. She was a script supervisor on Michael Mann's directorial debut, Thief. John Hughes's Sixteen Candles, and John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. She was a producer on a personal favorite of mine, They Live, has lectured on film production at American Film Institute, a.k.a. the AFI. Plus, just a little fun fact, she's married to whom I consider one of the greatest film director staff for Live, Mr. John Carpenter, whom together own a comic book company, Storm King Comics. That was certainly a mouthful, but it just goes to show you why we're so excited to have Miss Sandy King Carpenter with us tonight. Sandy, thank you so much for being on Real Talk. How's things going?
3: Everything's going great. Uh, a- a- as you guys know, I was just finishing up some work on the comics tonight. And, uh, you know, we've been uh, working through on uh, TV shows and movies during the lockdowns. Uh, we can't shoot, but we've been. Prepping scripts and getting things ready for when we figure out the bubbles as well as the NBA managed to. And, uh, you know, life goes on.
0: That's right. And I'm actually going to hear in a little bit ask you a couple of things about what you have in the works. So what our our audience can look for from you guys in the future. Whenever I sat down to prepare for this interview, I barely knew where to start because there are so many things that you've done in your career that are very interesting to me. And, I mean, I could keep you here all night, but, of course, we won't do that. And we were talking just a little bit ago that you're from L.A., you attended UCLA University, and right out of college you had the opportunity to work on animated film. Just so happened to win an Academy Award. So take us back to that time in your life. So what did you originally set out to do in the film industry, and how did this opportunity arise to work on Antimatter?
3: Well, originally, I thought I was going to be a a fine artist, a painter. And then I realized I would starve to death. Um, So, (laughs) you know, the art department and the film department at UCLA were on North Campus next to each other. And a bunch of my friends were actually in in the film department. They were friendlier people than the art department. And one of the classes I took over in the film department was animation. And I had a, a teacher who was buddies with with uh, a famous animator, Chuck Jones. And uh, there were interesting people over there. So I went over into animation and I made friends with uh, two guys, uh, uh, Lewis Hall and Carlos Gutierrez, and uh, hung with them a bit. And they're the guys that actually were a little bit ahead of me and... They had the contracts to do educational films and that kind of stuff. So uh, right after I graduated, I was working for them as a inker uh, on uh, their films, educational films, And one of them was antimatter. So uh, they won the Academy Award um, <laughs> rightfully. It was their, their film. There were three of us that, that worked on it, but uh, they put it together. And that was fun, but I also did things on, uh, the last one I did was earthquake prediction and my part of it was strange animal behavior, where I animated a frog going up and down in a well bucket going <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs>
3: and that was, you know, one of the of earthquake prediction. But we did things on the metric system and and things like that, where it was, you know, Henry VIII stubbing his toe on a barley corn, and that's, you know, became the inch, you know, from the. So there were, were various things that we would do to make educational films more interesting. Um, animation gave me a way to uh, make a living out of and still be in the art world. And um, then I was hired at Disney kind of the Mecca for all animators. And I was hired in character sketch. At that time, I had to make a choice between going into live action or going into animation. And I realized that with my personality, I was, I was fairly shy. And uh, socially, I realized I was sp- gonna spend a lot of my life in the dark, talking to myself, looking in mirrors, making funny faces. Or uh, go into live action, and that's how I got into script supervision because I understood uh, screen direction and uh, framing and those things from doing animation, mm. and it kind of made it so that I was able to make that transition.
0: And that was actually that was going to be the next thing that I was going to ask you about is is you transitioned it well as your work as a script super supervisor and my understanding that is a huge responsibility and you did this for over a decade on some major Hollywood productions. So the question I was going to ask you about it is for our audience, will you explain what a script supervisor's responsibilities are? And then during that time, do you you have any productions that were, you know, the most, most fun or most interesting productions to be a script script supervisor on?
3: (laughs) Well, you know, my 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 probably my most illustrious starting productions will never uh, be on anybody's credits list, you know, because when you're starting out, you're doing everything from uh, student films to porn to anything that'll hire you and give give you uh, experience. Um, you know, I I did, you know, I I picked up work anywhere I could and, and did a lot of second unit corman stuff and. Uh, and a little films like "Can I Do It Until I Need Glasses?" where Robert William, uh, Robin Williams was playing his sperm. Um, <laughs> so you know there's there's little little things like that. But uh, you know you get your start wor- working where you can, and, and that's usually on student films because no one can get too mad at you when you screw them up. You're working for free. Um, and you're all learning together. But a, a script supervisor is a liaison between the shooting crew, the editorial staff, and production. You're, you are the through line that helps keep the director keep his thoughts in line with what he originally intended before the pressures of the daily shooting set in. So you have an overview of the continuity of the film, as well as the details of the continuity. But you are also keeping a log of everything shot. And uh, so you're communicating with editorial and they're knowing every, well, in those days, piece of film. Now it's every logged sequence um, that make it so that the editor knows what the director's intent was at the end of the day when they're getting all the footage of, of what the sequence is meant to be. And you're keeping literally what they call the book that's that's all the notes of the script what the coverage is and all of that and it it's a great training ground um for doing other things i just happen to like it as a job in and of itself and so i started out in budget films but you know one of my first features was with john cassavetes Mm.
4: um
3: i was uh selling sandwiches uh up and down La Cienega Boulevard for a company called The Movable Feast and had a boyfriend who was a cameraman on the Cassavetes film when their script supervisor got in the union and had to quit. And I'd meanwhile been doing, you know, the student films and the AFI films and all that. And I said, I'm here, I'll do it, because I'd been, you know, I had quit. Uh, I'd had a flat tire, I was lousy at selling sandwiches, and I was loading (laughs) magazines in the back of a truck. For, for the film anyway and that really kind of set it up where I wound up doing then live action regularly uh, enough to support myself. you know at one point I was painting platform shoes for you know rock and roll stars at a, at a shoe company called Fred Slayton's doing the animated uh, inking of, of cells and working live action for free to support myself so, you know, you do what it takes when you're starting out. It was real glamorous.
2: That's a, that's a heck of a rise from selling sandwiches to screen supervisor all, all at once. That's a, that's a quick change.
3: <laughs> well, you know, I, I had been doing all the other little films and all the student <laughs> films and all the, you know, anytime anybody, you know, had an opportunity doing those things. And then um, in those days, Cassavetes would do his movies uh, he would do acting gigs in order to make his his directing films. You know, his "Woman Under the Influence" and that that stuff. And, and in this case, it was "Killing of a Chinese Bookie." And so I did that film. And then uh, the funny part was I had started having troubles getting the little uh, small films because I thought, "Oh, you only do big Casavetti's films." I go, "You have to be joking." You
4: know?
3: <laughs> Yeah, fifty dollars a week. Thank you. Um, but you know, I and mean, then you just go on from there. But that group of people I came up with at that stage in my career became the people that 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 wound up sticking with movies. You know, because we were used to being four to a room in the Mojave Travel Lodge, you know, making films for no money. Uh, you know, nobody was waiting for their cocaine and limousines we loved <laughs> in movies because that's what we thrived on. And uh, those were, I mean, yeah. assistant prop man was Todd Hollowell, who went on to become the executive producer for Ron Howard's company. And Hunt Lowry, who wound up becoming, you know, another big producer. And uh, one of the PAs that I helped get a job was Tom Jacobson, who wound up being head of production for Fox. So, uh, you know, our hearts were in it. Uh-huh. You know. We lived it. We we lived on each other's floors. We had a, a crew company made up of, of ten people, and they'd each throw in a dollar, and I would I would, uh, you know, cook dinner. I'd figure out how to cook dinner for ten people on nine bucks. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, that's how we lived. It's a lot different than everybody now. Everybody now is pretty shishy in how they start.
2: Uh-huh. <laughs> I like that. I'll, uh, that, that. you know how Hollywood was formed. It was
3: fun, you know, it was fun, because, you know, we, we were not doing, you know, great American epics, uh, with the exception of the Cassavetes films, you know, where we kind of, you know, really lucked out, but, but I think the deal was, we did really great, learned how to do really great jobs on really crappy movies, but man, did, did we do a good job, and we all really cared about what we did.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a good foundation to build.
3: You know, because,
0: you you know, look what's happened, you know, since then. You know, they just kept building and building. So Mm
3: -hmm.
0: that's great. Yeah. And and, and this isn't to diminish any of the other talent that you've worked with during this time. But I was particularly interested in your work with Michael Mann and John Hughes. You know, what what was it like working with these gentlemen? And can you tell us any stories from the sets of 16 Candles and Thief?
3: Well, you know, they were interesting because for both of them. They were beginners in, in directing. Um, John Hughes had been a writer and, you know, come from National Lampoon and stuff, but that was his, his first uh, movie as a director, and the studio didn't trust him. They kind of used me as a Trojan horse uh-huh. um, because I was young and they figured he would trust me. And uh, he was kind of surrounded by some, some shifty, the, st- the studio guys. The studio believed in him, but the old guard from Universal didn't. They just figured if they got their, their – their, uh, they were jerks. They were going to set him up. They didn't care if he succeeded because they could blame it on, on him. And they made sure they had their exclusive reservations at the local French restaurant and wanted to make sure they had their tea times right on the golf course. But he was talented, and he was good. You know, I felt he got short shrift. You know, there were there were guys that didn't care if he succeeded, and I came up through that group of people who it all mattered what was on the screen. When I was at AFI, one of, that was in the days of Panavision giving all the equipment, and major DPs and stuff would come in and, and shoot fellows' films, and one of them was Vilmos Sigmund. And I remember we were out in the Mojave Desert. We had this this crazy ass Hungarian who I couldn't figure out why Vilmos was taking orders from someone who didn't know what he was doing. And I was a twenty year old who just thought, you know, why are you putting up with this? And I said to him, you know, why don't you just tell him what to do? And he said, Because it's not my job. We're here to implement a director's vision. He said, the day that I'm hired for my vision is the day we'll do what I think should be done.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: It was a big lesson, and it guided me throughout the rest of my career and through to today. Yeah. There's one man's vision. So if I'm hired, and I told Universal at the time when they were sending me back to to be kind of the, the Trojan horse on John Hughes, um, I said, you understand, I'll be responsible to you, but I'll be loyal to the director. Because... That's how I was brought into this business. And actually, the executives were cool with that. So doing that show was rough, because the first a d, the uh, the unit manager, did not care about the quality. But the camera operator and myself were actually old school, and we cared about getting this guy his film and um and we succeeded but it was a rough show when you have have people kind of setting up the guy and at the same time you don't want him to lose his confidence because he's new Mm -hmm. so you don't want to go to him and go this guy's setting you up you want to keep his morale up Mm -hmm. and um you know i didn't come from that background of of politics we all used to pull together and and do 27-hour shoots on non-union stuff on you know crappiest stuff ever made but we worked our asses off and to see this guy getting set up and you can't tell him you know made for interesting politics and then you contrast that with michael Mann's show and um you know he had big stars and big money and and um it was uh, united artists uh, before Heaven's Gate took him down. <laughs> and, um, you know, he had a lot of support, but he took a lot for granted because he was really big, screenwriter, uh, television writer. So um, he was a challenge because he didn't take um, to being ever told anything constructive. So you try and tell him that, that in the background of his shots, uh, He'd lost his daylight in a parking lot. You could see that it was nighttime outside and headlights were coming through. And and he would tell you to fuck off. <laughs> um, and you go, well, yeah, I'm, this is exciting. Um, <laughs> you know, on the other hand, I got to meet like Willie Dixon from the All-Stars, you know, uh, and sit with him on a, on a pier while he played an old fisherman. So I mean, come on, how bad is that? Yeah you meet the guy that wrote a spoonful of sugar. Wow. So I was cool with that. You know, but but you had, you know, you had crazy ass personalities between Michael Mann and James Conn and and uh, Tuesday Wealth. I mean, it doesn't get crazier than that. <laughs> Driving down that you know the, the JFK Expressway while it's snowing and they're in a heated Cadillac and you're on the back of an insert car dying going into your fifth meal penalty. It's interesting. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure.
3: So, you know, uh it's always an interesting trip being on a film crew.
0: James seems a little bit like in real life and obviously I wouldn't know, but he just seems like his Sonny character from Godfather just a little bit. Seems it's like he could be a little
3: tense, a little tense. But you know what, but he's a smart guy and and um you know for me, he was okay. You know, I found a way to communicate with him and uh he and Michael had some interesting interactions because they're they're both a little high strung. But um those are the kinds of things you just back off and watch that show. Mm. Um
1: Hey Sandy, real quick, yeah. so from Michael Mann, I mean I'm a huge fan of his and everything I've read that says he's you know, like a true perfectionist and he does Tons of takes. I mean, is that, was that kind of your experience on Thief? Back
3: fact that, uh, the, I don't know if you're familiar with the scene at the Howard Johnson over the freeway where, uh, it's just him and, and Tuesday Well talking in the mm. diner scene.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. That's, that's yeah. a great scene.
3: Pieces of coverage on that over two nights. That gives you a clue. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, that gives you a clue, right?
3: Yeah. He also, have you ever noticed none of his characters speak with contractions? It's kind of an interesting. Watch a Michael Mann movie, and they they all talk like Michael Mann. That's interesting. Uh, they all say that is not what I mean. There's no that's. There's no isn't. There's no. Uh, those are just quirks. That that's yep. my big story. I always <laughs>
1: thought that his characters, like he had characters that like. Seem like him in his movies, like they're kind of like his surrogates in the films. Always felt well,
3: they're what he wants to be. Yeah, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: that's Andy. hilarious. I wanted to also talk a little bit about They Live, as I recently watched it again with a group of friends. And whenever your name popped up there, I was like, "Ah, oh, we're going to be talking with Sandy soon." You know, it was just it was just kind of a, a cool moment. But I've I've got a two part question about They Live. First the movie really challenges the viewer to look deeper than service level into the information that we receive from a modern day perspective. People are leery or not as trusting of vaccinations in medicine, what corporations are marketing to us, the news media, politicians, all of that. How do you feel that the premise of they live fits into 2021 and do you think this movie will stay evergreen? Do you think it's going to just continue generationally to find its audience and kind of compare to what's going on in today?
3: Well, I think what you have to look at is, is, is what's underneath that layer, which is it asks the question of who are you? Um, what makes you human? There's the, the one side of it, which was the political satire part and the... the at the time, we were looking at, at the Republicans and what they stood for and the gold Rolex watches and, and those things that we didn't think we would we would ever, my generation didn't think we would see again after the, the great, what we thought made such a difference back in the spring of 70 and those things in the anti-war movements. And then suddenly those very same people that you got arrested with demonstrating against the war were all on their BMWs, on their cell phones with blackened windows and, and not seeing what was going on around them and not caring. Um, I think that there is something about human nature that will constantly have to be re-examined, and which is what's happening right now. If people aren't examining who they are right at this moment, there's something terribly wrong with them. And uh, at the risk of offending half of Kentucky, Um, I think that we are in a perpetual state of uh, self-examination. So in that way, when you say, will it stay evergreen, perhaps it should. Uh, The sad part of it is, too bad. Yeah, it will. Because it's nature of who we are, as opposed to any specific era. You know, what is it that, that makes you human? What is it that makes makes you different than just being an automaton or a raider Mm
0: -hmm. Um, the day we watched it it just it just you know just hit everybody in the room a little bit and we just we went to lunch after we watched it and we're just kind of talking about that and we're like it's it's crazy how the ideologies and things that people put into their stories how they come back around and so i was like i've got to ask her about that
3: they should. You know, I think that, that one of the interesting things about genre filmmaking uh, is it's allegorical. You're able to, to um, I would say, you, if you make Gandhi uh, as noble as, as that movie is, you're speaking to the converted. If you make They Live, you're talking to an audience that might not really uh, otherwise listen to that message. But they really want to see Roddy Piper kick ass right. and maybe can get a couple other truths in there. Um, that that'll make somebody think just a touch about what's going on around them.
0: And so I don't have quite as deep of a question this time, but are there <laughs> any funs, any fun stories from the set of they live that you can, you can tell us about or just, just the experience of making the movie would be fine too.
3: Well you know that that was that was a great movie to do it was a great group of people it was a it was you know a, a the crew you know we tend to have or had through the years um, a really regular group that that made whether it was a higher budget or lower budget films um all worked together I mean Tommy coszy'd been with John since you know Halloween the sound mixer um you know we had Gary Kibby, we had had uh, race Stella, the the camera operator and and you know various people like that, Jeff Amata, the stunt coordinator, who's still just a really close friend. Uh, Keith David, who I just heard mm-hmm. from the other day, um,
0: like Keith and, a lot. He does a great job acting.
3: Oh, it, have you seen seen his episodes of Fargo, he directed?
0: I have not. Some of these guys probably might might have.
3: They rock. I mean, besides just being a terrific guy. So, you know, it was real interesting to have someone like Roddy, who was uh, uh, no formal acting training all guts, and Keith, who's a Juilliard-trained actor who has no fighting uh, training. And, uh, you know, so putting that together was interesting. You know, it, it was uh, it was an interesting challenge to do that kind of movie in downtown L.A. You know, full union um, for a low budget, and and tell that kind of story, um, and to to uh, do things like try and get a flavor of L.A. with with uh, racial diversity and economic diversity and those kinds of things, and uh, they weren't used to casting. Multiracial uh, extras, uh, physically challenged extras, and there were there were, in those days there weren't honey wagons uh, for disabled people, stuff like that. So there were interest, interesting challenges to do it, and then there was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, you know, we were ripping up and uh, and shooting fight scenes and making up idiot idiot looking aliens, and and we were getting. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we'd be shooting late at night, and we we had a drunk that I don't know what the hell happened out in Burbank. Uh, decided aliens had landed and was shooting guns at us. Oh my gosh! And you know the police had to come, yeah, you know, because we were we had makeup and costumers diving under the the trailers because they were being shot at.
0: Oh my gosh! So,
3: yeah, yes, <laughs> you know, so, again, it's the the glamour sense. of making movies. <laughs>
2: You know, now that you say that, I can't believe that doesn't happen more often. You know, it'd be frightening if you didn't know you just walked up on the set of a movie.
3: (laughs) Outside, I guess, and saw the... the, But come on, that's pretty silly. Alien makeup (laughs) was made to be that way intentionally. And, uh, Uh, you know, this guy uh, had to be real high. Um, (laughs) And and we're inside the stage and we start hearing gunshots and, and... Poor Frank Carasosa, the makeup man, is pinned under a trailer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, it seemed like it just seems like a really fun movie to make and beyond. And it had been so many years since I had seen it and I liked it so much more than what I did, you know, years ago. And I was like, This movie is awesome. I can't wait to, you know, watch it again and show other people. So I had to ask you about, about They Live. Thank you. So uh, after being credited as a script supervisor for over a decade, like we had talked about, you moved into producing, and that has spanned from the late 80s all the way up through today, where you've got a new horror film I read you're producing called The Manor coming out. Yeah. So what what made you decide to leave script supervising behind, get into producing, and then can you share some any details with us in the audience on The Manor?
3: Well, I got forced out of of script supervising. (laughs) I I had done some second-unit directing and associate producing before I met John, um, mostly for spelling, but also on, you know, like a CBS pilot, Key Tour two guy associate produced. You know, it it made sense in the way we structure our sets and, and just the fact that people knew that I could give them answers because I knew what John would want, or I could ask John directly when they needed an answer quickly. And John and Larry Franco and I kept the answers there on the set. Um, Larry Franco was the first AD and producer. We could do things really economically and rapidly, just keeping it all there. Mm. What happened was that as we did other films that weren't smaller, um, and that were more complex it didn't it wasn't as feasible and and when Larry was no longer working with us, so we couldn't split the producing and set duties, I had to be able to be in the office more and I couldn't effectively do both jobs anymore. Mm, okay. I love set um, and I would still do uh, the second unit script supervision and stuff just because. It's, it's fun mm-hmm. it's set, but there's the necessary evil. If somebody has to do the, the dirt work and the contracts and the, and the, the truck's broken, how are we bringing in another one? And the actress is sick, where's the doctor? And, you know, various things like that have to be seen to. So that, it just kind of forced my hand more into, into doing that side of it. No, that but, makes sense. Yeah. Um, The nature of producing has changed now where it used to be we went in and we were considered an independent film, but the studio was doing the financing and doing us like a negative pickup, but you had a lot more of the support of the studio. Now the producers uh, do all of the development, carry all of the costs, put together all of the financing and all of the packaging for the studios. So... That job starts a lot further out and carries a lot more of the burden uh, than it used to. The nature of the, of the producing job changed. You know, I'm kind of stuck, even though I still sleep on the set at night shoots. And, uh, you know, I'm in a construction trailer nearby yeah. and uh, I'm never not there. <laughs> so that's how that went.
0: And then on, on the manor, was there any, any details you can tell us a little bit about that?
3: Well, the manor is directed by uh, a really great uh, uh, young female director, Axel Carolyn. Mm-hmm. And um, she, she just really uh, uh, kicked ass on a, uh, a Netflix Blythe Manor, uh, a Mike Flanagan. Uh, show I saw
2: that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: And she she did the one that was the the black and white period piece one.
2: Oh, that one was that yeah. was creepy. Was that was good.
3: Yeah. yeah. No, she's really good. So she uh, she and I share agents. They had this idea to go to to um, Amazon with a, a feature for Amazon. Amazon liked it. Meanwhile, they made this other deal with Blumhouse, uh, Welcome to the Blumhouse, which was a series of eight features. We got rolled into that deal, so we became a, a Blumhouse Amazon picture. Mm-hmm. Um, we were supposed to be uh, the second movie released in that slate, but we uh, there's a complicating factor in that um, there's some older people who... Don't make it through the movie, and in light of COVID and the vulnerability of older people, it was considered best to postpone the release of our of uh, our feature.
4: Mm, it so it'll sense. be
3: out mm-hmm. a little bit later in uh, this year uh, when everybody gets less sensitive over this. Right, uh, old people. You know. God forbid we kill somebody. Um, yeah. <laughs> We should have killed more young people, I guess. Um, yeah,
1: that's not as frowned upon. <laughs> Apparently not. It's only a horror movie. What does that mean? You
3: know, I mean, movie. it's one of the risks. It's. Uh, I I think I'm the the anti Michael Douglas of producing in that I can, can be counted on to to choose things that are are not timely. To do. <laughs> that's
2: you a know. bad break.
3: Yeah, I blew up children uh, during uh, Oklahoma City.
2: Um, poor timing
3: some old people this year um,
2: was that was that
1: village of the damned
3: yeah, yeah yes that, yeah I, remember, I know
1: what you're talking about yeah that was was Are that controversial
3: we, oh yeah <laughs> we were we were John and Chris Reeve and I were in in New York doing a press junket for village when we had on the news and you know Oklahoma happened. And we all looked at each other and went, well, you know, <laughs> no bueno. <laughs> and um, oh, my called God. the studio and said, okay, so like we're pulling this, right? And go, oh no, you know, because because you didn't kill children; they were aliens. I went, nobody's going to think that. You uh, right. pull up a barn of children. You know, <laughs> right. this is this is you know, and of course, you know, they thought it was a good idea to put it out anyway. Um. First thing they said was how insensitive we just killed a barnload of children. You know, it's not good. It was not, not a good idea.
2: They didn't know about the children when they
3: shot it. <laughs> no, no. You know, um, <laughs> it's like, were you trying to explain to the studio executive? Yeah, yeah, I I understand the storyline. They're, they're aliens, but. um, that's not, it's really not good right now.
1: Right, right. <laughs> wow, that's that's really interesting.
3: Yeah, yeah, those are the things you just can't see coming.
1: <laughs> and that happens, you know, that happens more than we even realize that, you know, movies get caught up in that whirlwind of something that happens and they kind
0: of get stuck into that. Yeah, oh, the yeah. Gangster Squad movie got caught up in that because they, they had a scene of uh of a theater shooting, I guess, in there, and then that was whenever the guy, I think, didn't he bust in on the dark night and, and mm-hmm. kill some yeah. people in the yeah. theater? So I think all that was going on at the same time, and so they made him, you know, cut that scene out.
3: Well, it, you really you really have to be aware, and it's not just, oh, people. No, you really have to be aware of when you look like a jerk. Um, yeah. You know, it, it, it's just uncool. It, it's not that the audience is uncool. It's that that we really have to be cognizant of how people are affected by what we show mm. and what that seems to say about us and what that seems to say we're we're saying is okay. I think that distributors are getting a little smarter about that. Um, though I I don't think you can. There's times where you just sit there going, "Wow, really." You really don't get it. All I can (laughs) tell you is I wouldn't take my kids. Yeah. But that happens. And you just turn around and sit there. There's nothing you can do about it. Put it on the shelf and wait it out.
1: Yep. Yeah. That makes sense.
3: Yeah. It's how it is. How many many movies are sitting on shelves right now and how many things are we having to re-examine about how we release, how we market, whether it's movies or comic books or everything because of of social distancing and and you know this dumbest thing i watched was christopher nolan bitching about not releasing tenant in theaters uh this this last year we kind of got really you really want people to go into theaters and go die of covid just for your movie yeah why don't you grow up
1: i <laughs> <laughs> got a lot of pushback on that because he, right like he said he was really pushing for that
3: well, yeah, and it's just stupid. It's like, grow up. We, we're supposed to be making entertainment that delivers people from, uh, from this world into some world we create. Um, and it's not supposed to be about our egos. It's supposed to be about, you know, two hours in the dark transforming just that niche of time taking mm-hmm. you somewhere else. Maybe it tells you a a transforming story. Maybe it tells you something about your life. But we're not supposed to kill you. (laughs) That's ridiculous. You know, everybody just wait it out and and we'll be cool.
0: You know, as I said in the intro, you're the founder and president of Storm King Productions and Storm King Comics. Mm -hmm. Will you tell the audience a little bit about these entities and also the dynamic of you and John working together on some of the, the comic projects like Asylum or Tales for Halloween Night. You know, o- on the surface, you and John seem like y'all work great as a team, team and you've been very successful together.
3: That's kind of nice, isn't it?
0: <laughs> it, <laughs> it is. It That's, yeah. Absolutely. No, I, think
3: it's a gra- I, I am a very lucky person. Um, I'm married to a great man. Talented man, but somebody I have a lot of fun with. You know, for me, it was a great, a great solution to my life where I get to um, not have to give up one side of my life or the other. Mm-hmm. I don't have to, um, yeah. to not do the work I love or not have the life I love. Um, our kids... You know, would when they were uh, when when Cody in particular was too young to be uprooted from his friends, uh, we would shoot in town. We didn't go on locations for like 10 years. Um, we only shot during summers when the when they were out of school, or we went when we could take them out of out of school and bring their schoolwork with them, and they would be in the motorhome doing their their schoolwork while I was doing payroll um and then they got the chance to you know go to theaters and museums and things in in other places but that was once they were old enough to um benefit from going to those places and going Mm -hmm. to comic shops like uh uh silver snail on queen street in toronto and things like that it's great because I don't think John or I feel competitive with each other, but what we do um, dovetails. I think I was really lucky to have had that advice from Phil sigmund back when I was 20, that it's one, one person's vision that makes a film. Um, I don't feel a need to, to impose my vision on his movies. I feel uh, good about implementing his vision. Um, so it's not competitive. um I probably really annoy him at certain points in production um, <laughs> but we usually uh can resolve that by the final mix uh, <laughs> and uh and the same thing with the comic books I mean, the comic books mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah. i <laughs> why are you yawning during my interview? <laughs> I bore him, but outside of that, um, uh, I think with the comics, you know, he is able to... um, People always came to him to put his name on comics, which were usually not great comics. They just wanted his name to sell substandard comics. When we had an opportunity... Something came up that we had a story that worked out. It seemed like a good idea to make our own comic book. Largely because we were too stupid to know what we didn't know. <laughs> um, and we spent two years researching both the business and the art of making comics. And and we're fortunate enough to be friends with uh, people like Steve Niles and Tim Bradstreet and Jimmy Palmiotti and guys in the business uh, who were very kind and very generous with their time and hand held us through a lot of it. Um, and then we found out we like doing comics and it's fun. So we just kind of keep making comics. Um, and the way we do it is largely I run the comic company because I'm more detail oriented and it has more in common to do with producing. Yeah it's like putting crews together
0: and i can see that
3: and then you know for on tales for halloween night he always writes the first story it's it's anthology so there's always 12 stories he always writes the first one i always write the last one and in between we bring in all different kinds of writers and artists other things like asylum Um, Thomas Ian Griffith had had a story brought to us we were thinking about it for a TV show instead we turned it into a comic book because it was a comic book Um, I mean it just felt like one and then I took over writing it and uh, and so that one I'm finishing up the third arc will finally be done this year Um, I just burned out on it for a while uh,
2: I, I think the comic books would be fun. I mean, that gets all the creative, you know, you get to have all the creative, you know.
3: Yeah.
2: I think that, I mean, I think that'd be a ton of fun to make up those stories, work on those stories.
3: It I, is. I don't know. Yeah. It is. It's It's great because, it, you know, I don't have any budget limitations. You know, I can I can create outer space for the same amount of money as we burn a witch at a stake. I mean, it's like, yeah, go for it. Uh, you know, you can do monster transformations for no more money than, than you walk down the highway. Um, you know, it, and if and, you and,
0: dream that you can make it in, in that yeah, world,
3: yeah, it's re- it's really cool. And I, I don't have any um, ulterior franchise dreams about it. We make movies already. We make TV shows already. Yeah. Um. I just want—I want to make com. My big goal was to make comics. It was largely fueled by the way the comic industry was looking at me- people coming in from movies. They—they they thought they were all just celebrities who made shitty comics <laughs> and didn't care. And so that made me want to say, "Oh yeah, watch this. I'm going to make comics that you want to collect in long boxes under your bed." Mm. You know, I'm going to win over the nastiest of you so that you're going to come over and want my comic. And, (laughs) you know, I'm going to have it so that that you want to feel the embossing and see the foil on, on this trade paperback. And that was my goal. I wanted the biggest skeptic in comics to want my comics. Yeah, I remember the, the first time when one of, the, one of the old guard writers who I really, really respect came over to my table at one of the comic conventions and was looking through one of the books really slowly, looked at him and said, nice paper. Yes! Yes!
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> it paid off. He likes the paper. Um, <laughs> You know, it's like those little victories where you go, I'm trying hard here. <laughs> I feel
0: you know? It felt vindicated after have got all those creative or those competitive juices flowing. That was that was the big moment. That was the payoff.
3: Yeah, well, you know, as, as an artist, you want other artists... To think you're cool. Yes, it's like it's it's you just you just don't want to be that loser they thought you were. (laughs) You want to go, oh yeah, I can do a good comic. Watch this, (laughs) and then you hope to God it's good enough.
2: That's awesome. You said you said another inspiring thing, uh, Sandy. I have to say, Um, earlier this year at my company, um, we had a. administrative job. And I went to my wife and I said, Hey, um, you know, do you want to come work with me? We have an administrative job. She was like, I see enough at home, you know, with the kids and everything. I, I don't think I can work with you and be at home with you all the time. So it's really inspiring that you and John can work together. And because <laughs> apparently I can't, I got shot down when I, when I proposed that.
3: <laughs> it, you know, it, I think cause it came about naturally. It came about cause, we started out working together, um I think that's why it works, and um and and, and we kind of each have what we do is is pretty delineated, yeah and um and we trust each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it requires a lot of trust. Yeah. Um,
0: so Gabe's wife doesn't trust him is what we're learning. That's, no, there's he, good...
3: just, he just pisses her off. That <laughs> <That's a good laughs> oh, yeah, that,
0: that could be it <laughs>
2: too. <joke>. You know, <laughs> a lot of responsibility at that house. We've got a lot of animals and
3: kids, so, you know. I, well, that'll I, I, do it, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and having kids and animals is kind of one and the same, um, <laughs> you know.
2: It gives me a lot of options to let things down, is what I found out.
3: You know, <laughs> you know I mean, I always make jokes about kids and stuff to so people, but, but, I, but our kids did survive. Um, <laughs> and, and they're good men. And, uh, and, and all the animals survived as well. So I, nothing, nothing died with, with the way we raised them. <laughs> um,
2: I bet it was interesting growing up with you two.
3: You know, uh, I think in some ways we were a lot of fun because I would do things like, you know, I was, I was the perpetual room mother because they always have the, who's, who's the designated suckers that keep taking the job. Yeah. You know, and there were like three of us that that, one was an editor, one was a sales rep for a, a radio station and one was me. And you know we would always push the boundaries of like severed heads at halloween and stuff like that
2: (laughs) that's awesome
3: and um
2: yeah i can see that
3: you know i think i was probably stricter than people think i would be um you know there was just these many rules and then yeah you could con me into you know taking it for the team uh like yes our house was filled with kids every weekend. <laughs> yeah, this was this was the go to house with uh movies and and uh model making model making was big in our house uh, stuff I like can that. Say that but um I I think maybe we were a little more wholesome than people think we might be. <laughs> I don't know
2: I don't know based on your movies I could see that if you're if you're wholesome I could see that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I bake good cookies. <laughs> That'll draw them in. Yeah.
0: <laughs> For our audience sake, aka me, the last thing I wanted to ask you is uh is John enjoying the direction the Halloween franchise is now going and do you think he'll ever direct another feature film again?
3: I just got a giant thumbs up from across the living room.
0: Oh, okay.
3: He's, he really thinks David Gordon Green is, is a, a great director and has taken uh, the Halloween franchise in a great direction. He really loves uh, scoring the movies. Mm.
4: Um,
3: the, the second one, the Halloween Kills one, which is on hold for release... I know from from uh, he and the boys coming up from the recording studio that I know it's going to kick ass from what they said. And awesome. uh, he just really digs how it's going now. Um, they got back on track. I think it was great that, that uh, you know, they brought him more into the process and the executive produced these and um, he had a lot of interaction with... Uh, McBride and with and with David and you know I think it really paid off Mm -hmm. and I think it's more satisfying for for all the people that love franchise he's yes he's happy with it I think he thinks that the fans are going to be really thrilled with the next one and I said you just got a big thumbs up from across the room because he's eavesdropping on everything
0: (laughs) he's checking in on us Bowling Green boys (laughs) (laughs) never know what we're up to. <laughs> yeah. what about the, the the feature film. Does he have any interest in directing another feature film?
3: Oh yeah. <clears throat> he just said sure. Yeah, he does and we've got we've got 3 TV shows that are all just sitting waiting for them to figure out, you know, how to shoot them. And because uh, they're all they're all past the studio stage and at the network stage, you know, because like they they're like Schrodinger's cat; they're neither alive nor dead until until they go to network. Um, and we have a couple features. So right now, it's just a matter of being patient
4: mm-hmm.
5: and doing
3: the the other groundwork that you can actually do. So there's certain benefits you never have enough prep time, so you can actually get all the script. Things worked out. Do all the other stuff that everybody goes. Well, it was kind of rushed going into pre-production. All that. Yeah. Well, we're not rushing right now. Mm -hmm. Uh
0: So. No, that makes sense. I I haven't even thought of things in that in that way, but that that does make sense. It's like you can really fine tune uh, the vision, I guess.
3: Yeah, and you can get like the whole season scripts ready, and you know all that kind of thing. So those things are done. Contracts are done. We've got uh, you know some, uh, an audio series, and I don't know if they're podcast it's, it's an interesting thing. So we've made a deal that's supposed to be announced sometime in the next week, um, first uh, audio series. Um, and uh, you know, all that stuff goes on, the stuff you can do safely. And the rest of it you, you uh, wait for. He has a, a new album that's coming out in, is it February, honey? Uh-huh. February, Lost Themes 3. And, um, yeah. So the music goes on. The other stuff goes on. The comics keep going on. mm mm-hmm. um, We don't stop.
2: You know, it's honestly lucky you got involved in you know the comic stuff during this. I bet it gave you a ton of stuff to do constantly that you could, you know, where some play, you know, where some people can't work as much. You guys can right now.
3: Yeah, it was it was difficult. Through part of it because uh, Diamond, who's got a monopoly on comic distribution, um, decided out of nowhere that they weren't going to pay the publishers for the product they had and weren't delivering to the comic shops. So that was kind of interesting. That was an experiment in terror for both the comic shops and the publishers, because of course we'd already paid the printing and paid all the expenses of doing the comics. So, like I said, there's, there's, um, there's certain things coming out of the pandemic that will be interesting marketing lessons ongoing. I think that that the conventions are learning things of what can be done, say, that save. uh, San Diego Comic Con did a great virtual con uh, this last July that will probably help, even when the cons come back, Mm
4: -hmm. help
3: stop some of the overcrowding for the Hall H crowd. We had great success with the virtual panels which I think maybe will take some of the stress off for the attendees and yeah. for the cons, I think we can, we can learn some lessons from what we've had to adapt to and be ready for the next disaster that comes and maybe handle it better.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So it's, it's not all, I mean, it's rough, but it's not all downhill. I think we can learn ways to reach our audiences in different ways. Hope so.
2: No, I'm just glad we got to do the interview. We got to talk to you after I had to Facebook stalk you for a little bit. (laughs) You know, I feel like, you know, that could be a movie coming up or something. But, I mean, thank you. Thank you, Humbly, for agreeing to come on and do the show. I know Wes is a big fan. I, I love a lot of the stuff that you've done. You know, when I look through your filmography, some of the sets you got to work on, like 16 Candles, I love
1: just reiterate what you're saying, Gabe, and saying, don't worry about Gabe, because, you know, for a while I didn't know Gabe, and he did the same thing with me. That's how we became friends. He just (laughs) basically saw me for a while. And eventually, I just gave in. I was like, all right, cool, man. I'll be your friend. Just quit messaging me. Um, (laughs) But but what I really want to say, so one thing I want to do, I wanted to look at your filmography and just see if anything popped out at me of, like, films. And the one movie that really did, I just want to kind of, if anything you had to say on it was, the movie Vampires, which I really love, with James Woods. And is there anything that you remember while filming it, or anything off the top of your head that uh, about that film that you want to speak to our audience on?
3: No, you know, I I I think uh, I'm really proud of Vampires, and I I feel like um, you know Thomas Thomas Ian Griffith was a, was a great sexy vampire. Um, James Wood showed a side of himself that uh, I don't think anyone's seen or seen, had seen or has seen since, where he got to be an action hero. Um, uh, you know, uh, Tim Guinea we formed a lasting friendship with, um, he's a remarkable guy. And, um, you know, we we find every time we have a knack for choosing locations that studios then decide to have us shoot at the worst time of year ever. Um, so we we managed to shoot New Mexico uh, twice during its monsoon season and dodging oh, yeah. electrical storms. Um, <laughs> and it doesn't matter what you tell them when you go kind of no 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 we really don't need to die in another electrical storm in New Mexico <laughs> so we went back and did it again on Ghost of Mars. um <laughs> but um you know i i uh, i thought we really got a lot out of out of that area of New Mexico up by Santa Fe and and uh i thought our master vampires were cool
1: mhm yeah, I love the setting, like you said. I just love that film, so I just wanted to kind of just mention that. It's like that's just one of those I think is just so underrated. So I appreciate you kind of talking through that a little bit.
3: Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah or, I actually
1: watched Vampires
0: not. last week. Like literally watched it. Now I do have a lot of John's movies on kind of a, a rotation that I, I watch through every now and then, but uh, I hadn't seen Vampires in a long time. Ordered it, picked it up at Best Buy, popped it in. It's first time I'd seen it really since it came out and i was like that man that was cool and T i swear to you that was one thing that was sticking out to me was the setting it's 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 weird to say that a desert looking setting is beautiful but it, it was it just it yeah. looked great in the film
1: it was yeah. such an original yeah setting for a vampire film i just loved it and just like you said Sandy, james woods was just awesome in that role role that you really don't see him in very often
3: no no, he's not really well suited to it, but he really played the hell out of it and came out great.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. But, yeah, thanks. So and thanks for joining us. I just thought, you know, this has just been so, so much fun and so cool. So thanks, Sandy and Gabe. Good job on Facebook talking.
2: Yeah, I feel like me and Sandy have become friends. She'll, you know, she'll make me cookies or something from time to time from this point <laughs> forward. And, you know, that's how you develop a good relationship. First, a couple strange messages, then you get cookies. So, um, but thank you, Sandy.
3: Thank you, guys. You guys have a good night.
0: You as well. Thank
3: you. you. too. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: Audience, we hope you enjoyed our interview of Sandy King Carpenter as much as we did. A couple of things that we'd like to ask you to do to support our efforts here at Real Talk. Subscribe to our show and leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast directory. Also, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, at Real underscore Cast. That's R-E-E-L. We're on Facebook. We have a Real Talk, a movie podcast page. And you can find the page just by, by typing in Real Talk, a movie podcast. And for us, that's a wrap.